Good morning. <coughs> Good morning, Australia. Good morning. <laughs> morning. <laughs> morning, Australia time. Uh, pretty much back on a normal schedule now. Evening, evening, late evening, Europe. Afternoon, evening, US. You'll all work it out. Um, where did we begin today? Let's just begin with sponsor stuff because I then have a huge amount of stuff on which somehow ended up focusing a lot on Russia-Ukraine just because it became relevant and related to the things that I normally talk about. And then a bunch of stuff related to Cloudflare, which was sort of broken into three different parts because there's like three different stories to tell here. Sponsoring first is Veronis again. We're seeing a lot of Veronis these days. When I was on here a couple of weeks ago, I had the Veronis hoodie on. It is too warm to have the Veronis hoodie on at the moment because my non-IoT thermometer says it's about 25 in Celsius up here in the office. Uh, but I do have the Veronis hoodie. I have been wearing it a lot. We are coming towards winter, which didn't feel like it the other day because it was about 34 Celsius. The pool was 33 Celsius. Anyway, Veronis, reduce your ransomware blast radius with the leader in data-first security. Try it free. I hope most of the people that are listening to me now have heard me talk about Veronis many times before. Uh, and as I've said in the past, they're one of the organisations that I've actually spent the most time with as well, which has been nice in the... I was going to say back in, <clears throat> back in the times when we could travel, which we're just starting to be able to do again now, actually, but... Um, it's nice being home. Regardless, good to have Ronas, good to have the hoodie, which I'll start to wear again as it gets cooler. Go and check them out. They are, I think, almost certainly my most prolific, prolific, most frequent sponsor. So big thanks to Ronas and for everything that they do with the ransomware blast radiuses. Radio? Yeah, you know what I mean. Ransomware stuff. Moving on. Comments. G'day, Neil. Uh, welcome. Hope you're uh, hope you're ready for a lot of stuff. Jeez, where am I going to begin? I think I've been feeling tired this week. I've had a very very active week. I find um, one of the things that is the best when when there are more stressful times <laughs> is exercise. So I have been smashing it out this week. I've had two sessions at the Wake Park. I think today is going to be my third session. Uh, bike rides, tennis sessions, long walks. Uh, every day, according to my watch, I have been doubling, doubling my usually fairly aggressive exercise goals, which has been great. I feel very good uh, from that. And, and as for all the things that are <laughs> the stress inducers. I, th I think one day when I write my memoirs, which is not what's in the book, the book is not really the memoirs, but one day, if I ever become important enough <laughs> to actually have people want to read memoirs, holy shit, the things is going to be in those. All right, let's just move on to the less contentious stuff. Uh, the cyber things, and particularly around around various things related to Russia, now, I, I think there's a, a really interesting discussion here around the things that are being disabled uh, or taken away or sanctioned in one way or another and as it relates to the bits and pieces I do the things that might be related to tech or the cyber now I tweeted this one the other day which I, I thought was sort of an interesting discussion which is there was a news article here highlighting the calls from some people to Elon Musk saying you should disable Russians Teslas 
And I thought, this is really interesting. And I, I, I shared this. And there was a lot of feedback here. Uh, one of the pieces of feedback was consistently people saying, you can do that. <laughs> like people are buying a car where the manufacturer can then remotely disable it. It's like, wow, okay, that's interesting. And then there was a thread where a bunch of people who I think we probably more US-centric view here were saying, well, look, a lot of like fleet managers and so on can do that anyway. Like what if you don't pay your your car repayments? You know, yeah, like you get your car disabled. I feel that's a slightly different thing though. And I feel like it's also different because even here, like that's that's not a normal thing here, but it's like you have a car which is a physical object and it has a number plate on it and it's traceable and normally someone just comes and takes your car if you don't pay the bill, I believe. So I think it was very interesting. A lot of people like that the technology can do that. The technology can disable the vehicle. But, I mean, we know that Tesla is a, a highly connected machine. Uh, I did find some people saying, well, in order to take an update from Tesla, it does require user approval. So, assumably, if you were a Russian and you were thinking Elon's going to disable your Tesla, you could just go, no, I'm not going to take the update, which is, uh, which is interesting. So... <sighs> I guess where we start to get a little bit more contentious, I, I personally think it's a terrible idea. Uh, now, I think that the, a bunch of sanctions and other things are very, very good ideas. But I think the idea of disabling is a terrible idea. Uh, and, and here's why. In fact, the way how do I phrase this, I was a bit more, <laughs> a bit more subtle. I always find if, if it's a tweet and it's short and it's in writing and it's said without the uh, a, a emotion that you can convey in a forum like this, I'd just be extra cautious. I care less when I'm doing these. I don't care less, but I can add inflection. I said, I love the idea of sanctions on Russian govs and corps, but killing the cars private citizens have gone out and bought is an absolutely terrible idea that will have all sorts of adverse negative consequences. Oh, that's more direct than what I recalled. So here's what I, I mean by adverse consequences. Like, let's flip it around a little bit because we're we're all very good at... Uh, saying, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, yeah, you know, like, screw them. Uh, and, and we all do that from our own points of of experience and views with our own biases. And whilst I have no doubt that Russia's doing terrible things to Ukraine, I think when we sort of flip it into, let's say, a China context, then it's actually really interesting. So if we start to set precedence of if you buy a vehicle manufactured in a foreign country there might be geopolitical reasons for them to make your vehicle no longer work. What if it was China? So what if it's China invading Taiwan and we have all this argy-bargy about sanctions and all the sorts of things that would happen if they ever did do that? And then a Chinese car maker turns around and says, all right, we're just going to turn your cars off and you can no longer drive your car. Now, I had uh, many responses to that. Some people are like, why on earth would you buy a Chinese car? J just for reference, we have a lot more Chinese cars in Australia than what we do American cars. So Chinese cars were, I, I believe, the fourth largest um, uh, car by country. So what was first? It was probably going to be like Japan, Germany. We don't make any in Australia anymore. Anyway, they were, they were larger than the US. So we've got a lot more Chinese cars here than we have Teslas. How would we feel if we start to set a precedent that you can just turn the car off. What if it was us? And again, it doesn't matter like who's wrong or right in terms of the, the geopolitics of it. It's more just the fact that a foreign manufacturer can now disable your device. And then people are like, well, Visa and MasterCard aren't accepting payments and McDonald's is pulling out of Russia. Or I think they're suspending trading in Russia. It's like that's, 
that's different. Like if I can't go and buy French fries, uh, okay, I'm going to be maybe a little bit pissed off. I'll go and buy them from somewhere else or I'll get my food from somewhere else. But if you've just purchased a car, which is generally the second largest purchase anyone will ever make after their house, and you've invested a large amount of money into it, and then the thing is killed, what might that do to people in other parts of the world later on when they're thinking about, do I buy a car from a foreign manufacturer? What might that do to not just the Chinese car industry, but the US car industry, that the German car industry? I mean, do, do we start getting to this point where it's like you can go and spend all of this money on something and just have it completely killed? It'd be different to say, look, we're just not going to service your vehicle uh, until we get past this phase and, God forbid, things actually settle down. That's a different story to like we're just going to literally sabotage your vehicle. I feel very, very uncomfortable with that. Just looking at some of the comments here. Uh, Stratus, g'day, Troy. I'm glad that you like my Matrix uh, agent fan art. I did see that the other day. That was good, mate. I like that. Lance, g'day from sunny Sydney. Finally sunny. Sydney was another one of these parts of the, the eastern seaboard of Australia, which was significantly underwater in recent weeks. Australia says, I feel sorry for the everyday normal citizens of Russia that have nothing to do with the war that are suffering. And, and this is going to lead us into part of the other discussion here around what sanctions and other measures uh, impact government versus impact citizens, what's reasonable, what's commensurate to what's going on. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Let me finish with the Tesla thing first. Someone did comment later on, and I haven't independently verified this, that there's only something like 200 Teslas in all of Russia anyway. So for the most part, this is probably an arbitrary discussion. Uh, and, and that would not surprise me if that was the number, given that that's a, certainly a premium vehicle in terms of cost. Uh, even in Australia, there's, there's really not many, per my previous comment about having a lot more Chinese cars than American ones. So maybe it's a bit of an arbitrary discussion anyway, but I just think as a concept... That's very worrying. And I, and I sort of made the point to some people as well, like what if what if we start taking the same view of, say, consumer devices? Now, I've got an iPhone, American company, made in China. I imagine if there was a massive falling out with China, they'd have to manufacture it somewhere else and the prices would go through the roof. What if it's a Huawei device? So what if China just started saying, yeah, geopolitical reasons, uh, because they think Taiwan's a territory of China and they're going to take it back and they think they're right and we think they're wrong. We're just going to make your Huawei's not work anymore. Well, what does that do to their market here? What does that do for people that have legitimately gone out and bought those devices? Um, it's not a car, but it's still an expensive consumer device. Who is then the victim of that? So we haven't seen anything more come through there. It's interesting just watching the way Musk has been commenting on on some of the discussions here uh, around Russia and Ukraine. One of the things he said, which I guess gives a bit of a sense of his worldview, is he, he wouldn't be censoring uh, censoring content via Starlink. So Starlink, uh, being their satellite-based internet, has been pushed out to a lot of people in Ukraine because it is it is no longer bound by cables and other things that can be cut by an adversary. It literally talks to satellites. But it's very interesting. He said he wouldn't be doing any censoring because very sort of philosophical beliefs of information should be free and people should have access to it, which which is interesting. So it's complex. It's complex, isn't it? Lars is here. Lars says there are an estimated 500 Tesla vehicles in Russia and about 400 of them were sold through the Tesla Club. That was 18 months ago, though. Okay. Good, uh, good info. Captain Irrelevant says, I think the issue with Macca's pulling out is that they'll hinder the loss of income in the economy based on job losses. 
it'll hinder with loss of income in the economy based on job losses. So other related things, sort of since we're there, and I'll do this a little bit out of order in terms of what I had here in my notes. One of the things I noticed just today, I got an email from Universal Audio. Now, Universal Audio are the creators of the digital to analog converter that I had sitting here for about a year, which I concluded was basically a piece of shit. Call it as I said. <laughs> and I got rid of it and replaced it with a much cheaper Focusrite one, which just works beautifully. Uh, but other than that, um, Universal has sent this, this email today. I'm obviously still on the list because of what I purchased. Titled, An Open Letter in Support of Ukraine from Sandeep Gupta, COO of Universal Audio. <clears throat> stuff, 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 stuff. And then the important bit here is, as of today, we are pausing all UA sales and support activities in Russia and Belarus. Okay, pretty consistent with many other parts of the world. But then they also said, and we have blocked all IP addresses from those countries on all our websites and services. Which is interesting. And I, I tweeted this out and I said, look, it's, it's a strong stance. Which other services are blocking traffic from Russia and Belarus? And how does everyone feel about this approach? And should we see more of it? And we, we sort of come back to this discussion again about who does this hurt and who will it what will it change? <clears throat> and I kind of understand the arguments both ways on this, which is, you know, on the one hand, it's, and, and I'll be honest, like part of the reason I asked the question, I was thinking about have I been pwned. So, you know, should have I been pwned just block traffic from those two locations? Uh, it would be easy for me to do because I just go into Cloudflare and go, if like you know, CF request dot. Uh, .country equals you know, Russia or Belarus, then just, just block the traffic or show them a, a page in support of Ukraine or, or something like that. So it'd be dead, dead easy for me to do. As, as a, a symbolic thing, it really wouldn't take me much effort. And I do, I do wonder how much of it that is from organisations who are like, look, I, I hate to sort of use the, the term virtue signaling here, but it's very easy for them to just pop up and do something that really doesn't. I don't think that Universal Audio has like a massive Russian and Belarusian market. It's a very easy thing for them to pop up and say, look what we have done. I'm just not sure that it actually causes change. Now, maybe this is the digital equivalent to putting the Ukrainian flag on your Twitter profile, which is what I'm seeing on some of these, which is, okay, it's a nice symbolic gesture of support. Does it actually impact change? And are there any adverse consequences? I was just listening to uh, Risky Business, listening to, to Pat uh, and Adam talking with, um, with Krebs. And there was a discussion with Brian Krebs around a number of things, but one of the things I thought was very interesting was around Cloudflare. And we're going to talk a lot more about Cloudflare today, all the good stuff. <laughs> and the discussion was that apparently Cloudflare are not suspending services uh, in Russia or not cutting things off there. And the, the guys were sort of on the fence about whether that was good or bad simply because there is a lot of information sitting behind Cloudflare. If Cloudflare was to start knocking those things off, well, then we lose access to information. And I want to say, we, it's, it's like normal Russians as well. And there's this whole other discussion here around the, the people like on the ground in Russia are inevitably suffering because of this. I mean, their rubles being absolutely slammed. They're, they can't get French fries anymore. Like, there's actually other serious things happening to them as well. Um, 
how much punishment should be directed at the individuals on the ground there as opposed to at the government and the large corporations. Yeah, I think the idea of like seizing oligarch super yachts uh, is fantastic. We're all, we're all on board with seizing the super yachts. But the idea of, of then taking things away from individuals, whether it be there's small number of Tesla owners or or access to the Universal Audio website or access to have a impound. I'm just not sure that that actually does anything of any use and does actually have some adverse consequences. Mikhail says, uh, no, VPN has not come to Russia yet. Because, uh, okay, Laza said, doesn't Russia have VPN? Um, it's an interesting question. If I jump over to Nord, and I'm, I'm not going to turn this on now because it's going to change my connection whilst I'm streaming, but do you have a Russian exit node in my Nord VPN client, which I always have sitting here? Apparently No. The only RUSS we have is Brussels. <laughs> so we don't have an exit node there. So one would imagine that uh, that they really don't have a presence there. Now, of course, Russia does have a history long before the Ukraine invasion of not necessarily wanting everybody to see the things that are out there in other parts of the world. So I can imagine VPNs might be a bit limited. Not sure what the level of access to things like Tor is. I'd noticed also when I was listening to that Risky Business uh, podcast just now, they said that Twitter has stood up uh, an onion service as well to make information available to folks in Russia. And this is kind of the interesting paradox, isn't it? It's like on the one hand, take the French fries and the Teslas away, but on the other hand, make the social media as available as possible because that has a free flow of information, which for the most part is is not censored. <sighs> it's complex. It's complex. Let's talk about scams. It's a little bit less complex. So one of the things that always happens every time we see something tragic happen in the world is scams follow it ridiculously quickly. And, and you know, the, one of the ones that always comes to mind is the missing Malaysian Airlines flight or the one shot down over Ukraine some years ago. And as soon as these things happen, suddenly there's scams around trying to extract money from people who are usually well-intentioned. And I shared this one just today Someone sort of CC'd me into this tweet. So there's a SMS scam. I'll read out what this says here. It says, urgent crisis. The bombing of hospital and maternity ward in Mariupol, so this is what happened only a couple of days ago, has caused a humanitarian crisis with children stuck under the rubble. Evacuation efforts are being impeded by continuous shelling in the region. The Ukrainian medical response team have asked for crypto donations. We are asking for donations in crypto due to being instant and every single second matters. Please and thank you. HTTPS bit.ly link. What's actually on that bit.ly link? Let's have a look. I have not gone there, but uh, I'm curious to see if anything... Uh, Okay, so this is bit.ly... For those following along at home, forward slash 34, capital B, capital Q, H, V, I. YOLO. Let's just see where this goes. Anyway, while I'm waiting to see where this goes, or this goes to Ukraine needs you all dot live. Or Ukraine needs you, just the letter you, all dot live. I've got to be honest, like I'm looking at this and I cannot tell whether this is a scam or not. Uh, no Google safe browsing, big red 
screen scammy thing. It looks like a GoFundMe sort of page. It says there is uh, $11,294 raised, 97 donations, a goal of 100000 It looks just like a GoFundMe page. Under the Donate Now button, there's a padlock that says Secure Donation, so I know that it's okay. Oh, this is dodgy. Is it dodgy? And then there's all these thank you for donations down the the bottom of this. Is this legit? Who who fronts this? Let's have a look at some response headers. Uh -huh, response headers powered by Express. It's not sitting behind Cloudflare or Akamai or returning the usual AWS headers or things like that. If you go to donate now. It's asking for an amount, and then it says choose your currency beneath that. Bitcoin, Dash, Ethereum, Tether, Litecoin, USD coin. Uh, yeah, 50 bucks, why not? Continue. And I assume we're going to get a wallet address here. Uh, okay, let's choose Bitcoin. Continue. Uh, this is... Is it legit? So link up the top, verified information. This will help answer my question. On the 24th uh, of Feb 2022 at 5am, Russian Federation military force was launched an assault on Ukraine. Keep up to spend with the latest... Keep up to spend? But see, then you go, all right, bad English, but also it's, it's, it's Ukraine. Like, I don't expect them to have good English, but I also don't expect scammers to have good English. Keep up to spend with the latest developments in Ukraine's battle for freedom and democracy in Europe by following the country's official sources and outlets in English. And then they've got all of these URLs, uh, which do look like official URLs. I mean, one of them is a .gov.ua. So anyway, you see, you see where I'm going with this. Like, this is extraordinarily hard to tell whether this is legitimate or not. I think uh, after I get off this, this, um, this call... Cool. <laughs> what is it? This live stream. I might look at this a little bit closer because if this is not legit, I would love to get Google to put the big red page on an ASAP. Now, here's part of the problem, right? So I've tweeted this, and then someone else has chimed in and said, "You know, like the, the actual official Ukraine government Twitter account. So this is at Ukraine on Twitter, is actually asking for crypto donations." Now, if you go here to at Ukraine. Uh, so this tweet says, stand with the people of Ukraine, now accepting cryptocurrency donations, Bitcoin, Ethereum, USDT, and then they've got a BTC address and an Ether and a USDT address. And it's got 216,000 likes, 59,000 retweets. And this appears to be legitimate. But then what makes it even more confusing as well is someone here has pointed me at part of the thread. Uh, I'm just going to try and find my reply to it because you read this and you're just like, oh, holy shit, this is why it's all so hard. Uh, where was it? It's in, uh, here we go. All right, so that tweet that I just read at the time he screen kept this was four hours ago. After that, there's someone here who's got a verified Twitter account and three Ukrainian flags in their Twitter profile says to follow up on uh, Vitel Boot, someone's tweet. I've confirmed directly with the Ukrainian ambassador that the addresses are correct and in the control of the Ukrainian government. Give! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Defending free and open societies may be the best thing we ever do with our BTC and ever. And then just beneath that, <laughs> uh, there's a reply from another verified account with the same 
image as the Ukraine account and it says update the addresses have been changed and then it gives you a different different addresses it's like uh, how like what what are you meant to believe and if I'm sitting here not able to tell straight off the cuff whether or not this is legit or the Ukraine needs your live website is legit how are normal people it's not that I'm super normal, but you know what I mean. Like people that don't live in this this world that most of us here do. How are they meant to figure it out? Read in the comments here. Um, Lars says, one analysis estimates that downloads for the top 10 VPNs in Russia increased by 4,375%. Seems feasible. Stratus, Trump is currently trying to scam his followers out of money monthly to buy a private plane. <laughs> it seems a bit tangential, but yeah. Uh, Captain Irrelevant says the .live domain for this sort of thing seems off. Uh, I would agree. I, I do think that I do think it seems off, but it's got a padlock. Who issued the cert? I wonder if that tells us anymore. Connection is secure. Certificate is valid. The certificate was issued by R3, which means let's encrypt. So, yep. Okay. Yep, well... As, uh, as Scott Helm has said many times before, we even want the phishing sites to have certificates because it does help us with certificate transparency and being able to trace these things. Bairton says, where are the images located? Let's have a look. Where are the images located? There's a Ukrainian flag up here. Uh, that is a data URI just there. This is in the source code. I'm viewing source, which depending on where you're from, may be hacking. Uh, hello, American state. <laughs> Some of you know who, where that is. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of inline CSS down there. Scammers not always the most efficient. Anyway, I'll go and have a look at that a little bit more later on. Um, Angel says, seems scary to make any donations unless you get confirmation from legit sources. <laughs> but... Uh, which is a legit source, you know? Like this, this is the the problem. And when I'm looking at this this image here, this Twitter account, I'll drop this in the. I'm going to drop a link to this tweet into the chat just here, and you, you'll you'll see the challenge. You'll see why this is so confusing, particularly given that one of these is a verified Twitter account. Uh, okay, so this Twitter account is A-R-I-E-L-L-E-T-S-O-U-K-A-T. Now, here's the other problem. That sounds like a very strange name to me, but I'm Australian. Lots of stuff here is strange. Maybe this is like a really, really normal Ukrainian name. Maybe it's like a Russian, or not Russian, but a Ukrainian important person. Oh, no, see, I don't think this is. Oh, you know what this is. Is this a verified account? Senior digital content editor at InStyle, Marie Claire Australia, Sydney-based writer. And then it's just a Ukrainian flag. Ah, this is completely confusing. And the first... Here you go. I'll drop this in the thread as well. The first few images are like beauty photos of women. Not salacious. They're like this. This is safe for work sort of stuff. Um... Oh, this is just so weird. It's so weird. And, in fact, the last tweet was 2019. If I look at tweets and replies, is there anything new? In oh, all these tweets are unavailable. Huh, interesting. Why? Learn more. Why is that tweet unavailable? 
I think someone's nuked those tweets. I have a feeling that this is a legitimately verified Twitter account. Is that what the fly? What does it look like when it's verified? Why don't I look at my own? Um, that looks like it's uh, been subject to an account takeover. Yeah, that would that would seem to be the case. So someone's taken over, and look, we've seen this all the time. Verified account gets taken over, gets used to spam, crypto spam or things like this. But the very fact that uh, it's this logo from Ukraine, which is the same as the one on the Ukraine Twitter account, that's been, oh, man, what a mess. What an absolute mess. I wonder if EV certificates would fix this. So, that you, All right, let's, let's go on. Let's talk about something more fun. Let's talk about screwing with spammers. So... I kid you not, I've been thinking about how to do this for a year. And I get these emails all the time, which is, Hi, I love what you do at TroyHunt.com. I don't know if this is how they sound or not. It's in my mind. <laughs> love what you do at TroyHunt.com. Uh, would we be able to make a guest post? Love to make a guest post. We've got content your audiences would love. And I'm sure if I look at my spam, oh, I don't want to go into my email now. Who knows what I'll see. Uh, I'm sure if I look at my spam, I'll see even more of it. But I get this all the time. And I've been thinking for quite some time, how do I seek my revenge <laughs> on these people? And um, I, some time ago, took the approach with people wanting me to link to content on their websites where I wrote that blog post about uh, basically screwing spammers. And now every time someone says, hi, I noticed that you mentioned, this is how weird some of it gets, okay? I'll show you the weirdest one. Troy Hunt spammers uh, where are we no I won't link to your spammy article so I get everything from this is some of the titles of different places that people would like me to link to uh, the best internet browser for 2020 right so someone sent me an email and go hi I noticed you wrote about something vaguely related over here we have a resource that we think would be really useful for you it's called the best internet browser of 2020 could you please update your blog post to link to us because they're trying to get all these inbound links to improve their seo and get more people coming into there and make them more money infidelity statistics 2020 do men or women cheat more <laughs> Cybersecurity career guide you know the best one here's the best one if your kids in the car they can hear this but you're going to have difficulty explaining it afterwards how to put on a chastity cage. <laughs> like someone has literally emailed me and said, we notice you've written about something. Uh, we think that your audience would be interested in having a link through to how to put on a chastity cage. So what I do with these, and we are up to 77 now, <laughs> in these 77 instances, I tweet that exact string. So I have tweeted how to put on a chastity cage and I link through to this blog post. And then I take the tweet, the link to the tweet, and I reply to the spammer and say, yeah, here you go. Just to mess with them. Occasionally they reply. Sometimes they're upset. Sometimes they actually laugh, which, okay, it's fine. So I have been looking for the equivalent of how should I do this with people wanting to guest post. And I had a flash of inspiration a couple of days ago when I was just looking. I just wanted to do a fun project. I wanted to sit down, write some code, solve some problems in the world. And I had this flash of inspiration, which is if I want to make their life painful, what is something that I find painful in my life? I was like, well, 
password complexity criteria, obviously. Like it's, you know, you go to the website and you try to create a password. And the, the, the problem that I have these days is they go, no, your password's too long. It's got characters that are not allowed or something like this because I generated out of one password. The problem many people have is it says you don't have an uppercase, you don't have a lowercase, you don't have a non-numeric symbol, something stupid. You've got a special character that's not allowed. So I thought, that's painful. What if I could create a service which just makes creating a password hell? And then what I could do is when I get these emails, I could say, yes, I am interested in your guest posting. I actually have a, an application form over here on my blog. Here's a link. Just go fill this out. It's all good. You'll get money. Sure. <laughs> and I need to find the right verbiage to have them go to that page. And the first thing they will need to do is create a password. And when they try to create that password, it will not meet the password criteria doesn't matter what the password is, it won't meet the criteria. And what I'll do is I'll just keep making the criteria worse and worse and worse as I go along. So, you know, we start with the basics. Got to be at least six characters long, uppercase, lowercase, number, non-alphanumeric. And then we start messing with them. Needs to have at least one character from the Greek alphabet. Must have at least one primary Simpsons family character. And what I want to do is as they're filling this out, There'll be an API somewhere, and then we'll talk about how I built this yesterday in open source. There'll be an API somewhere, which is sending the password to the API, and the API is the one that comes back and gives them increasingly frustrating password criteria. But I also want to log every password criteria that is sent to them and then how they try and meet it. Because I think it's going to get really, really funny, right? <laughs> Can you imagine some spammer sitting there going, oh, I really, really want to post about that chastity cage thing uh but but is a simpsons character i'll put that in you know i just want to see what they do and i'm going to have to tweak this over time and figure out what is the sweet spot to waste as much of their time as possible and make it as amusing as possible for all of you and me as well and i was thinking what to call it and i thought oh, i should call this password hell i'll call it password hell because this is what it is right it's like it's like literally living in password hell and of course, someone's domain squatting on <laughs> password hell. So I pivoted to password purgatory. And uh, purgatory, for those of you not familiar with the term, uh, it has religious backgrounds relating to if you've been bad and you're on the naughty list, then you go downstairs and you spend some amount of time there. It's, it's, I don't follow it closely, but I read a little bit. I, the definition I used here is purgatory, a place or state of temporary suffering or misery which is basically what trying to fill out arbitrary password complexity criteria is. So this is my idea. I'm going to look at the comments, then we'll start talking about how I did this in code. Uh, Captain Irrelevant, going back to this um, account tweeting Ukrainian stuff, says looks like a hacked account. Yep. I think we all agree with that. Angels, confusion loop, just making that up. But if security professionals can't validate, the world is in trouble. We continue to fight the good fight. Yeah, it's 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 an. I, th I think in a case like this, what what the Ukraine government needs to do, because it, I, I take it from the official Ukraine account, and given the amount of exposure it's had, and the fact that the tweet is still there, that that tweet is actually legitimate. Uh, I, I think what they really need to do is be very very clear in their messaging about there is like one place 
and one place only that you go if you want to donate. And I, I think we need to echo that as well. We need to find better ways of getting the information out there. Um, what else we got here? Stratus Troy's on the hunt. Captain Lowe, what's your thoughts on XKCD password entropy logic favoring long memorable phrases over complex character combos? So this is probably referring to the XKCD comic that says a good password is correct horse battery staple. Now, <clears throat> the, the problem I think we have a lot of the time, we will get back to password purgatory, but the problem I think we have a lot of the time is we, we look at problems in vacuums. And, and, and the vacuum that that comic addresses is what makes a password strong. So, you, you know, we know that a, a password that is not strong would be like the word password with character substitution, your dog's name, where you went to school, uh, things like that. And in that vacuum, the example they gave of a passphrase is very good. And, and what I've often said to people is, look, if you want to make up a passphrase, like look around the room, pick four random words or, or make up a sentence. Um, I've certainly used on many occasions things that I've been thinking about on the day and I've turned it into a sentence, not saying what it is, and then I use that as a passphrase for, say, my master password on my, my one password account. Here's what I mean by the vacuum. How many accounts do you have? Well, I'll answer it for you. You have at least 100. Uh, if you're watching this, you're more tech-orientated, watching and listening to it. You will definitely have more than 100. But even if you pick your non-technical friends who buy things online, book movie tickets, uh, have made a doctor's appointment via their portal, all of these things, you create a massive long tail of accounts that you have no idea how many of them there actually are. I literally, in fact, I'm going to tell you how many I have in my one password right now. Uh, and again, I am exceptional. <laughs> Only in so far as the nature of what I do means I create a lot of accounts. My one password, how do I actually get a list of all, all logins? Um, I know... I can see the list. I just can't see a count. But I know that it's about a 1,000. I literally have like a 1,000 different accounts. And when I look through this, it's Ferrari Chat. Why do I have an account in Ferrari Chat? Uh, this was imported in 2018. Okay. It was originally created in March 2013. Now, for some reason... I was on a Ferrari chat website and I created an account. Uh, I'm seeing bank things here. I'm seeing uh, IMDB. Uh, I, I'm not sure why I have an IMDB account. I, th I think probably because it kept nagging me. I've got airlines. There's stuff everywhere about accounts. So to, to go back to Captain Irrelevant's point here, past phrases like what XKCD recommends are great in isolation, but now you have to make a different one for every single one of your, let's lowball it, every single one of your 100 accounts. Now you can do that, but then how do you remember which one belongs to which account? Everyone who says they have a formula is taking shortcuts, and I've had this argument to death for the last decade. So how do you remember which one's for which accounts? Well, that's why you need a password manager because uniqueness is becoming one of the most important attributes of a password due to the prevalence of credential stuffing. Now, you get breached in one place, credentials get taken, they get used in other places. So once you have to have uniqueness and you need to remember which password you've used where and you need a password manager, why even bother with passphrases? 
Like, why do you need a passphrase if you can just like generate random passwords and store them in the in the password manager? Anyway, the only time you need passphrases are the times you do actually need to recall it. I'll give you a couple of examples. Your master password. Uh, often the password to let's say log on to your PC. Now I've paused as I've said that because like, no, hang on, I fingerprint my way in <laughs> both to my PC and to my uh, and to my laptop over there. So I just think. Passphrases are a stopgap for the most part, and the times that you actually need them where they make sense are extraordinarily rare. Okay, what else we got in here before we move on to more password purgatory? <laughs> Eric loves this. Awesome, a password that never meets criteria. I love it. People are very happy about this. Hmm. Burton says, uh, have it interrupt them as they type the password with arbitrary rules, resetting from time to time. The letter A is no longer allowed. I think there'll be a combination here because what I'll get to in just a moment is that this is going to be an API that, well, it already is an API that anyone else can use as well. Uh, I literally literally enabled the cause to allow all (laughs) so anyone can integrate it into their front end. So there's now going to be a combination of what do you depend on the API for versus what do you want to implement in your own client front end. So things like, you know, interrupting as they type or someone made a comment today and said, oh, you should should put a delay in there, you know. Uh, so you put the password in, it takes 30 seconds to respond. I could do that on the server side and just put the thread to sleep for however long, but it would be much more efficient to do that on the client side. So you got to choose where you implement various controls to lead people to the purgatory. James said, need two email fields that don't match because of space on the end and block copy and paste as well. You know, you're you're the second person, James, who said block copy and paste uh, on password fields. Yeah, that drives me nuts too. I suspect the audience that I'm dealing with here is not generating passwords from password managers and then possibly not doing the keystrokes and having it blocked. So, but again, that would be something you could do yourself on the client. Strata says, can you post a link to the password manager that you use, please? It's the number one password. If you search for you know, just to be safe, search for one password, Troy Hunt, you'll figure it out. Okay, let's talk more about how I've done this. Now, um, <laughs> continuing the theme of screwing with people and organizations I don't like. Last month, I wrote about DigiCert and some of the, the, the nutty stuff they had originally around EV certificates and then this whole thing about uh, looking for identity verification attributes to try and establish whether or not you can trust a website. And they're like, hey, you know, like you should have, you should have like a DigiCert seal. If you have a seal on a page, then uh, people will know that it is secure and they will trust it. <sighs> Rephrase it because we're using these terms interchangeably. People will know that the site is legitimate and it's not like a phishing page or something. So I, I ended up creating a website called digicert-secure.com and I put a seal on there. Uh, but, you know, the, the seal that swims around in the ocean. When I did that, I was like, all right, what's the fastest way of creating a website now? It's an interesting challenge, right? Someone says, all right, I want to have a website. What's the fastest way of going from zero to website? Three, two, one, go. And... I'd heard about Cloudflare pages, and I hadn't used them before, and I was like, oh, let's just give this a go. And they're awesome. They're super, super awesome. 
Now, they're very, very awesome for multiple reasons. Number one, free. <laughs> so you can get started for free. It's one of these freemium sort of things. There's a lot you can do for free. And then if you want to do more stuff, then you pay some money. Free is good. Number two, particularly as it relates to hosting, say, a static page somewhere, like literally just an HTML page, which is all my DigiCert secured website is. All it's got to do is serve an HTML page and some images and some CSS and stuff like that. So the server-side stack is not an issue for something like that. It's not like oh, I need .NET hosting because I'm going to execute you know, C Sharp or something like that. So that also made life very, very easy. Now, the, the, the other things that make it super, super cool is very, very easy deployment from GitHub. So I went, literally, go create a GitHub repository, put an index.html file in there, uh, and then go and set up the deployment into GitHub rephrase that, set up the deployment from GitHub into Cloudflare pages. Now, every time uh, anything in the main branch changes, it just auto deploys, job done. Super, super, super fast deployment. Now, of course, you can then do all your dev in another branch if you want, merge back in, job done. So that made life really, really easy. The other thing that's enormously cool about all this is that Cloudflare is not a hosting provider in the same way as, say, Azure is. Uh, I, I think my love of Azure is fairly well known. The most modern paradigm that I use there in terms of, of how I would host code would be functions. Uh, and functions are great because they're serverless. So you write your code, they run serverless, which is actually on a server, <laughs> runs on the serverless server, and then per execution and then per how much memory it's using and how long it runs for, you pay based on execution. It runs in the West US data center. So a bunch of my stuff is on Azure Functions, West US data center. When you deploy a Cloudflare page, it deploys to all of the Cloudflare edge nodes, of which there are hundreds around the world. I think it's 200 something. The, the, the big figure I remember is Matthew Prince was always sort of quoting, they wanted to get something like 99% uh, of the world's population within 10 milliseconds of a Cloudflare Edge node, which means, and I actually show this in the, the blog post here, which means that after I stood up that uh, that Cloudflare Pages website, which is really just one HTML file at the moment and an image, after I stood it up and I hit that, I looked at my response headers and there's a CF Ray ID. So every request has a unique CF Ray ID and it is appended with the data center from which it's served from. So I load the page and there's a dash B&E for Brisbane. So about an hour's drive up that way. So very, very close to me. I fired up NordVPN, VPNed into Oslo, loaded it again and it will serve from a Copenhagen data center. So obviously very, very close then to Oslo. I'm not sure if they have an edge node in Oslo or if there are reasons why. Sometimes, depending on telcos and the deals they have with them, you might not get the edge node that's the absolute closest to you. I remember in the past, weird stuff with Telstra in Australia where they just had infeasibly high costs. So if you're on a commercial plan with Cloudflare, you could get uh, content served from, say, the Sydney or the Brisbane edge node. Otherwise, you'd end up in Singapore. Not sure if it's still like that, but I could see that sort of thing happening. Anywho, point is, is that I've got no idea where the thing's hosted because it's literally all over the place. And this is what's really, really cool about Cloudflare pages. It, it just globally distributes all over the world. Now, this is enormously fast to, to build, deploy, complete. And honestly, I think if someone said to me right now, three, two, one, go, how quickly can you get a website out? 
from absolute zero to like registered domain, also all the HTTPS and TLS stuff and all your security headers and all the rest of it, all done. I reckon 15 minutes absolute tops. I could go from zero to having domain registered, certificate done, source control, automated deployment, globally distributed out across hundreds of edge nodes, uh, whole thing, job done, 15 minutes for free. That's cool. That's super, super cool. And look at some comments, then we'll talk about the next bit. Burton. Oh, yes, stick a zero with non-joiner in there. That's super hard to find if you don't know what you're doing. More, uh, more password purgatory. So the pages are static pages. So they'll sit there and get served off these edge nodes. Now you want to do some dynamic things. This is where workers come in. Now, I've used workers a lot over the years, and workers are great because the, the, way, the way they work is you write code, which is effectively JavaScript. It gets pushed out to all those Cloudflare Edge nodes again. When inbound requests come, the workers can then do various bits of processing. I have used workers a lot in the past to do things like add security headers to troyhunt.com. I couldn't add headers in the Ghost Pro implementation, uh, which which runs my blog, but I can intercept the traffic and I can add security headers. Incidentally, this is one of the, the, the joys of having Cloudflare as a reverse proxy. And I've heard people say before, ah, oh, this isn't very good. They sit in the middle of your traffic. They can see your traffic. It's like, yeah, that's awesome because you can do all of these amazing things. Everything from like adding security headers through to intercepting malicious threats through to caching things through to uh, when I stood this up, I went and just ticked all the bottoms, to, uh, bottoms, buttons <laughs> to auto minify the content. I haven't even looked at that. Has it done that? Password purgatory. What was my URL again? Passwordpurgatory.com. It's not in my history yet. I wonder why that is. Uh-huh. View source. Uh, it's taken out the white space. There we go. Uh, it has kept the line returns, but I had very nicely indented my HTML. It has taken out those white spaces automatically, thus saving some small number of bytes. Uh, incidentally, when I load that as well, I should see Brotley compression. Do we see that? Uh, where is our content encoding? BR, there we go. So I also have Brotley compression, which is super, super efficient compression to load my like six-line HTML page. So the workers are great. They sit there in the traffic and they intercept things. Now, workers are great for doing things like building APIs as well. In fact, workers are a really big part of services like Report URI so that we can handle masses and masses and masses of inbound requests, uh, catch them on the edge, combine a whole bunch of them, push them through into Redis caches and things like that. So really, really cool stuff that we can do at massive scale. And because it's Cloudflare's infrastructure, like that scale is near unprecedented. So creating a Cloudflare worker with Wrangler. Now, I I, I did all of this. I did all the work. I blogged it. And keep in mind, like, where are we now? We're 11 o'clock on Friday morning. Uh, it was Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening, I think I registered the domain. And then I got up yesterday and I was like, I'm just going to spend a good chunk of my day doing this. So everything I'm talking about was like just yesterday and I had to learn a bunch of stuff as I did this. So I wrote this whole thing up <laughs> and, and I was live tweeting it as well. It's just, ah, oh, you know, let's make it social. 
And as I got to the end of the whole thing, someone did make a point. Now, the, the way I've done this is I've gone, okay, Cloudflare pages, that'll just host the static page, Cloudflare workers, uh, different repository, different paradigm within Cloudflare, runs pretty independently of pages. So I made the point later on, they said, look, there's a beta of functions with Cloudflare pages. And functions is a paradigm within pages which allows you to execute code on the edge. Now, it is, as I said, it's in beta. This looks to be sort of the successor to the model that I have done here. Uh, I don't mind too much because it's all pretty easy anyway, and it gave me a chance to play with things like Wrangler. So Wrangler is their CLI, which you can run locally uh, as an emulator. So if you want to, and this was the first time I'd use it, I've written a lot of Cloudflare workers before, but I'd always done it in the in the browser, in their little, uh, in their little GUI. Works fine, but nowhere near as nice as like literally being in your favorite JavaScript code editor locally, making changes, uh, seeing the CLI pop up and say, hey, we just identified a change. And then in the browser, running on your local host port, what was it, 87, 87 or something like that, refreshing it and actually seeing the results there straight away. So Wrangler's made it really, really, really easy to run this locally. And then there's also a Wrangler deployment app in GitHub which you can then use in the same way as the pages deployment, which basically says, look, there is, let, let's say, a branch. And a, again, main is maybe not the best branch to be automatically deploying from, uh, or at least not working in actively. Let's do our work there. Every time it changes, we're just going to pick it up and push it out. So within a very, very short amount of time, I now have a Cloudflare worker, which I can edit locally, do all my changes on, test it locally, super, super fast, commit, push, picks it up automatically, pushes it out there, job done. And it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's beautiful in its simplicity and its effectiveness. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. I'll look a comment here. Uh, Psychonauta, is there a specific reason you decided to deploy to Cloudflare over hosting on GitHub pages itself, the CDN aspect? Look, I'm, I'm conscious there is GitHub pages. I've not used it personally before. I like the global distribution nature of the Cloudflare bits. And, and to be honest, I just find I, I love GitHub. I'm a GitHub star, apparently. I've got a thing over there. Uh, I just find that every time Cloudflare builds something like this, it just it, it speaks to me. <laughs> like It just nails, somehow scratches the itch I have. I'm sure you could do many awesome things with GitHub pages as well. Strauss says, we're back on passwords here. You could add one of those click three pictures that has an X in it, and there is never said object in the picture. <laughs> click the picture with the instructions of how to fit the chastity cage, and then you can... Uh, don't worry, I'm conflating things. I had a, a bit of an a, epiphany last night after I'd written this blog post and pushed it out and had all these nice comments on it. Um, the, the first time I wrote code for the web was in... Uh, 95, I was at university, I was 18, which dates me. But I just remember having this feeling of how amazing is it that I can sit here uh, on the Gold Coast, same city I'm in now, and I can write some code and I can put it out there and anyone in the world can say, like, the possibilities are amazing. This was before Facebook and YouTube and all these sorts of things. Like, how cool is it you can do this? And I, I had that same feeling yesterday which is just the, a, a wonderment at the amazing things that we can do in this industry. 
Uh, and I have done many, many things on the web that have failed drastically. <laughs> like many ideas either failed drastically, or maybe a bit disingenuous. Projects like a safer web for scanning security configurations. It's not that it failed, but I certainly never made any money from it. I didn't become known for it or anything like that. Uh, but I, I scratched the itch or the why no HTTPS stuff I've done with Scott Helm. Like it's been a bit of fun. And I, I think that this will be the same sort of thing. But it's just amazing that you can have that reach and more so now than ever before. The fact I can do that for free and so easily and so, so quickly. I, I'm just blown away by it. Uh, and I, I'm just looking forward to all of the things that you guys, other people out there, my kids will hopefully create in the future using technology like this. And if you haven't used it before, it's totally free. So go and give it a go. It was good fun. I, honestly, really, really scratched an itch for me yesterday. Just sitting down and go, I'm just going to write code. Code and a blog post and just get, get shit done. Okay, so look, I think I'm going to leave it there. I do want to go back and, and start looking more at that code. I'm sure I've got a bunch of PRs probably sitting there from people adding their own ideas of, of how to put people through hell <laughs> with their passwords. So I'm looking forward to, to having a read of those. I will actually get a search box on the Password Purgatory website. I'll get some API documentation for people that want to use it. And then on my blog, when I've got those other bits right, I will create the page I'll start sending the spammers to. Uh, and I, I really hope that we all get to enjoy their suffering. Bill Campbell says, how did you get the domain for free? You will still need to purchase a domain. You can purchase a domain through Cloudflare. Uh, it is at cost. I think it's about 10 bucks a year. If you don't want to spend 10 bucks a year, you can just use the temporary domain that they will not the temporary domain. It'll, it'll, it'll stay there. But the, you know, I'll give you an example of what it is because it's in here. The Cloudflare domain password dash purgatory uh, password dash purgatory dot pages dot dev. So you know you could uh, you can always just use that one if you want to, or if you want to shell out your ten ish US dollars per year, then you can put your own domain on it. Okay, folks, thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope that next week we're able to start talking about how much pain we have put the scammers through. I shall find where my mouse could.